I wish I could have been a fly on the wall just to listen to the conversation between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams as they debated the structure of the newly forming American government. Two legal geniuses to just sit and listen to them as their great minds talked about immensely important things that would influence generations to come. I wish I could have witnessed Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla argue about the benefits of AC versus DC electrical current, current that would power the United States of America for generations to come. Two geniuses cut on the cutting edge of their respective field that would change the history of our nation forever. I wish I could have just listened and learned as General Eisenhower from the United States and General Montgomery from Great Britain strategized military action against the Nazis. Two great minds, one unified cause. Just to hear and to observe and to listen would be a privilege. And the same could be said for hundreds of conversations throughout history whether it's with geniuses, leaders, influences, influencers, or just normal folks that make big decisions every single day. I wonder who that would have been for you. Who do you think about and say, if I could just have, just have listened and learned, I'd be so curious to find out how she articulated this or he expressed that or how they came to a particular conclusion. What would you hear? What would you think? In a similar way, I wonder if you've ever thought about the conversations between God the Father, his son, Jesus Christ, and the third person of the Trinity, the eternal Holy Spirit. If you could peel back the veil and listen to what they talk about. <laughs> what would you hear? What would you learn? What would you think? There are a handful of instances in the Bible that give us a glimpse into those types of conversations between Jesus and his father. They're the prayers of Jesus. And John chapter 17 perhaps is the most highly lauded of those prayers. We often refer to it as the high priestly prayer. And it gives us an insight into the desires of the Son expressed to the Father. The priority that he has for the time that is to come. And what types of things God, the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ, talk about as they enact the plans that have been established from eternity past. And so I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to John 17 if you have a copy with you. If not, the words will be on the screen. And this morning, we focus on the first section of this prayer, just in verses 1 to 5, where Jesus is asking his Father for glory. And this is what he says. John 17 at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The two predominant themes in the Gospel of John as it relates to Jesus are glory and love. Love, the love of God expressed to humanity through the work of the Lord Jesus and the glory of the Lord Jesus as he receives that glory due to who he is and what he does. And here we see Jesus pray for that glory. He asks in the headlining statement of the prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And before we explore the three ways that Jesus requests this glory, I think it's important for us to pause for a moment and consider what we mean by glory. What is the nature of glory? Because glory is something that is, in many ways, difficult to get our arms around. It's difficult to define biblically. And typically, when we think about glory, we think about something that is significantly less than the glory that God displays in the Bible. A simple definition of glory is it is one of those aspects in a person that makes them worthy of praise, of honor, or of respect. Glory is an aspect of a person that makes them worthy of praise, worthy of honor, or worthy of respect. It's often associated with beauty and splendor. And sometimes it's associated with a particular accomplishment. As it relates to God, his glory is found in his inherent and infinite splendor that is displayed to us in his divine attributes. Attributes that he has that no one else, no other being has. Things like his self-existence. No one created God. He is self-existent. His eternal nature. God has no beginning and he has no end. His self-sufficiency. God needs no one or nothing. He is sufficient wholly in and of himself. God's transcendence that the God of the universe stands over all time and space, that he is not locked in. And while he is transcendent, we also say that God is imminent, that he is near, that he functions in time and space, even though he can stand outside of time and space. God's attributes include the fact that he is immutable. He never, ever, ever changes. And he is omnipotent. There is 
nothing that is impossible for him. And in fact, he is all powerful in such a way that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and he does do it. God is holy, which means he is pure in every single way. He's righteous. Every thought, every word, every action that comes from God is perfectly right and good. God is incomprehensible to us. Even though we try to understand these communicable attributes of God, we still only understand God fractionally based on what he chooses to reveal to us. The rest we simply cannot comprehend. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is loving. He defines what love is because it is at the core of his nature, and he is just. Every single decision God makes is perfectly right, and it upholds an unchanging standard of eternal justice. And much, much more. If glory is an aspect of a person that makes them worthy of praise or honor or respect, then glory to the one who stands above all things and holds all things together. And you'll notice that when we think about glory and we speak about glory, that glory and beauty and splendor are found not just in the attributes of God, self-reflexively, but they're found, that glory is found, in that those attributes make God different than any other being. And we use language of comparison like that all the time when we think about glory. If you talk about the glorious home run that you saw in the baseball game last night, you're distinguishing that unique home run from all the other hits in the game that weren't home runs. And you're also distinguishing it from any other home runs that you've seen recently, because this was a glorious home run. And that means that the swing of the batter was just beautiful and smooth, and the towering fly ball that sailed not just 380 feet, but 450 feet, not just into the lower deck, but into the upper deck. And the fact that the game was tied one-to-one -one at the time, and the pressure was on because it was the bottom of the ninth inning. This was beautiful. This was striking. It was more more glorious than any other hit that we've seen in a long, long time. And so too with God. His glory is unmatched. His beauty is unparalleled and it has no comparison because there is no one that has the attributes that God has. He possesses true glory. And when I think about glory and when we seek our own vain glory in this life, the more you seek glory for yourself, the more you see how it's all based in things that are very temporal and very shallow. Because what we pursue is often not real glory. It's cheap imitation. But when God works, and when you catch just a glimpse of 
his divine attributes, there is splendor. When God makes his presence known and you feel it, there is radiance. And when you take stock of your own holiness or lack thereof, and you see it in contrast to the pure and perfect being of God, you begin to sense glory. This causes King David to say in Psalm 24:10, Who is the king of glory? The Lord, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And so when Jesus nearing the moments of the cross, requests that the Father glorify him. He is requesting that the splendor and beauty be displayed in such a way that it is a splendor and beauty of God himself. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. And he seeks this glory in three distinct ways. First, he he seeks glory on the cross. Verses one and four, Jesus says that the hour has come and that he has accomplished the work that he was sent to do. Jesus is nearing the hour of his crucifixion. The time that was appointed by God the Father in his sovereign will and his providentially plan since the world began, since before the world began. This was God's appointed hour. And rather than the sovereign will of God discouraging the prayer of Jesus, it energizes the prayer of Jesus as he prays That as he is lifted up to die in a gruesome death of shame and agony for everyone to see, that they would not see shame and agony, but that they would see one who is enshrouded in splendor. As he finishes his work on the cross. This begs the question, How does Jesus' work on the cross point to his glory? There are a lot of ways we can answer that question, but the first is that it shows that Jesus was pure and therefore the sacrifice to God was acceptable and sufficient. God would not accept a sacrifice for sin that was insufficient. He would not accept a sacrifice that was impure. We see that all the way back in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system, there are certain types of lambs and certain types of bulls and certain types of uh, dove that need to be sacrificed and they could not be impure. And Jesus indeed was the pure and sufficient sacrifice. Another way this points to glory is that it removes the barrier to God. That our sinfulness cannot co-mingle with God who has all of these divine attributes that I mentioned just a moment ago. God doesn't co-mingle with sin in that way. And yet when Jesus was on the cross and the sky turned dark and the earthquake happened, 
the veil in the Holy of Holies of the temple was torn into two and fell to the ground. The veil that separated the holy place from the place where those sinners were allowed to be. The barrier was gone. And this is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And this does not mean that God now has all of a sudden loosened the standards and said, now I'm going to be more generous than I was before and I will commingle with sin. A holy God with unchanging divine attributes never changes his standard. What it does mean, though, is that the standard has been met. It means that through the righteous Savior, Jesus, that all of those who would believe in him would be given his righteous standing. The barrier has been broken. Access to God has been attained. And Jesus gives it to all of those who would believe. You know, there's an old tale that speaks of a man who died and he faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates. And the angel said to him, all right, here's how this works. You need 100 points to make it in. Tell me all the good things you've done. I assign a point value. When you get to 100, you get in. And the man says, well, that's great. I've been living my whole life on a scale of trying to be better. I mean, that's how you get to heaven, isn't it? Is that you just need to be, do more good things than bad things and the points will add up and eventually you get in. And so he says, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. And I never cheated on her once. Not even in my mind. Gabriel replied, that is wonderful. That's worth three points. <laughs> three points, the man said incredulously. Well, fine, I attended church all my life and I supported its ministry both in serving and with my finances. Fantastic, Gabriel said. That's worth a point. One point? The man said, beginning to show a bit of panic. Well, how about this? I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city and I fed needy people by the hundreds every holiday season. Terrific, Gabriel said. That's two more points. Two points, the man said. At this rate, the only way I'll get to heaven is by the grace of God. <laughs> to which Gabriel said, Come on in. <laughs> Friends, this is good news, this glory of Jesus on the cross. The glory of Jesus on the cross is shown because it means that you don't have to go through life trying to figure out if you're on the right side of the ledger. It means that the access, the barrier to God is broken and the access is present. It means that God has no limit on his love for you. If he is willing for his own son to die in your place, then clearly there is nothing that God will not do in his pursuit of each and every one of you. This is good news that glory, that glory is given to the Lord Jesus on the cross because by grace, through your belief in him, you can be saved. You need just cling to this Savior. You'll have access to God, all the access you need. And for this work, Jesus receives 
glory. The second aspect of glory that Jesus prays for is seen in verse five. That's glory in heaven. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. When Jesus came to earth, when light shone in the darkness, when he left what he had in heaven, he left resplendent glory. We call this the fact that Jesus condescended to us. Whenever God interacts with us or when Jesus became incarnate on the earth, we call that condescension. And condescension simply means that a person makes themselves lower than they really are to interact with those beneath them. And now, as Jesus nears his return to heaven in the ascension, he asks God to return the glory that he once had. We know that God answered this prayer because Jesus did indeed return to heaven. We know that God answered this prayer because he was indeed seated at the right hand of the Father. Kent Hughes says that infinite glory cannot be increased, but this glory is, is greater in that there is now a greater understanding of it by both men and angels. And so that's why Philippians 2, 8, and 9 says, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. That is glory. And so you're starting to see this prayer move toward its center. And as you do, you begin to see that the Father gives glory to the Son and you may enjoy this glory forever. The Father gives glory to the Son. You have the opportunity to enjoy this glory forever. And you see that in the third aspect of what Jesus prays. Because he prays in verses 2, 3, and 10, he prays for glory in your life. Jesus goes to the cross. He understands what's at stake. The glory of God is at stake. But this is not just a vain glory or it's not just a glory that is self-reflexive. Though if you're God, that kind of glory is just fine. But this glory is displayed in the life of all of those who would believe in him. Anyone who would follow him. We call them the church. And so he says in verse 2, look at it with me. He is praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he goes on to say in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified 
in them. There's many observations to make. The heart of Jesus' prayer is for glory, and as he prays for glory, he's praying for the followers of him, those who would believe he's praying for the church. These are the people that God has given to Jesus, verse 2. And Jesus gives these people who God has given, who believe in him, he gives to them eternal life. And as a result, finally, this church, this group of people, these followers, they would come to know God and know his son, Jesus, all the more. Not just know about him, but actually know him. Here's the summary. God gives people to Jesus. Jesus gives eternal life to those people, and those people now have a knowledge and relationship with God and with Jesus. And in this, Jesus receives much glory. Why? Why does Jesus receive glory for this? He receives glory for this because the greatest gift that God gives to his son is people. It's you. And if you have any questions about your self-worth before God, if you doubt the fact that you're made in his image and that's significant, then know that the gift that the Father gives to the Son of you is something that points to glory. (laughs) And if that's true, then how valuable are you to God? It points to glory for Jesus because eternal life is the greatest gift that Jesus gives to those people. It's the greatest life he could give to be with him forever. And it's the greatest glory for Jesus because knowing God and knowing Jesus is the greatest possible, most valuable relationship that you as a person could possibly enjoy. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul speaks of this kind of glory of the Lord in your life. And he writes this, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This means that Jesus doesn't just give you a good life, though he does. This means that Jesus doesn't just give you the best life, though he does. This means that Jesus gives you eternal life. Eternal life. Life that never ends. Everlasting life. And in this, he receives glory. He is glorious and he clothes you in that glory. And as a result, you undergo this incredible and ongoing change. From one degree of glory to another, he says. You become a new person. You grow in his likeness. And you come to know him and enjoy him for ever one degree of glory to another my family and i lived in the same house for my entire childhood until i left for college at the age of 18 18 years we lived there 
for more time, for actually three times more than I've lived in any other house since then. And before my parents sold the house six years ago or so, I would sometimes refer to it at our, as our house, but more often I would refer to it as home. <laughs> because it doesn't matter where you live in the world, you know where home is. And what makes it home is not the address or the lot of land or the town that it's in. It's not the architecture of the house or your favorite room in the house. What makes home, home is the people that you're in relationship with and that you share that space with. And so when Jesus talks about eternal life for you in heaven with him as he's glorified, as he returns to that glory in heaven, so many of us have an inadequate view of what heaven might be like can't tell you how many articles I've read or how many conversations I've had over the years about how boring heaven must be. How I picture heaven as just a really long, boring church service. How I'd rather have the torment of hell than the boredom of heaven. I have no desire to sit around in the puffy clouds. Again and again and again. But what makes heaven heaven is not the streets that are made out of gold. What makes heaven heaven is not the great fountains. It's not the incredible amount of fun that you have, and I believe you will. It's not the fact that there's no weeds in the garden. What a relief. Or no crabgrass in the lawn. That all may well be true. And actually, I think heaven is going to be infinitely greater than our wildest imagination because the same God who designed the very best things on earth went to a whole nother level when he designed heaven. But that's not what makes heaven, heaven. What makes heaven, heaven is God. It's being there with him. We're talking about the God who is surrounded in light, who embodies splendor. The same God who is more beautiful than you could possibly conceive of. We're talking about the God of all glory. With his presence comes peace and contentment and fulfillment and a sense that all is well. With him, you too get to experience glory. And knowing that heaven is your home and not earth is your home because you are with God there has profound effects for your life here on earth right now before you get home. The contentment and glory of heaven that you're enshrouded in begins to bubble over in anticipation for the rest of your life here on earth. You anticipate this future in the presence of God. Meanwhile, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another because you are enrobed with the glory of your Savior that you receive upon believing in him. And your eternal life, which you always tend to think about beginning after you actually die, your eternal life with him, 
doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you believe, even right now. And so Jesus prays for glory. Glory on the cross, glory in heaven, and glory in your life right now that extends all the way to another degree forever. The Father gives glory to the Son, and you have the opportunity to enjoy that glory forever. And so I close with three short reminders from the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And John 1.14, the very beginning of this book, says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father gives glory to the Son and you can enjoy that glory forever. Let's pray together. Worthy are you, Lord God, to receive honor and majesty and glory. Father, we long to see and to experience more of your glory in our lives. We profess today that through the Lord Jesus we desire greater transformation from one degree of glory to another. God, we want to know you more than we know you today. We want to know you more next year than we knew you this year and experience this ongoing joy that occurs in life with you. And so we thank you. We need you and we praise your holy name for the work of your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.